Tech and Facebook and Twitter in particular have not had a great four years since Trump was elected in 2016. I mean, their business has been fine in the end, but when it comes to public perception, it hasn't been great. The left has said that they were responsible for allowing misinformation and all kinds of Russian chicanery to take place on the platform, and the right says that they're out there censoring their faves. So even though the business, like I said, has been good and their stocks have risen, the anger against them has never abated. So 2020 was an opportunity to reset things. And did they? No, obviously not. I mean, as I record this, our president has, I'm sure, been tweeting multiple times, nonstop, with wild and baseless allegations about election fraud. And these companies still don't know what to do about it. Attaching labels to it, things like that, it's a controversial stance, but it isn't fixing things. So I promised you last episode that we'd get right back to discussing the election that will never end, and here we are. This is Tom Dutton, and on this week I'm speaking to Alex Heath, our Facebook reporter, about the fight within Facebook over how to handle politicians' posts, and why Mark Zuckerberg rebuffed an effort inside the company to take a much harder line stance. Then, in our second segment, Corey has a nice chat with Nick Bastone, our Google reporter, about Loon. Loon is one of those alphabet wild idea companies that, surprise surprise, is a bit of a money pit. A moonshot, if you will. But that's segment two. First, let's talk Facebook with Alex. So one of the big questions for Facebook and every social media platform going into this election was how well they're going to handle all the disinformation and biases that are going to be thrown out by almost all users in the U.S. Uh, on the topic. And, you know, we can get into the specifics of how well Facebook, you know, ended up handling it. But Alex, you wrote the story that looked at a debate internally at Facebook over how they should deal with posts from politicians and if they're going to be saying things that are wildly inaccurate. Why don't you lay out for us here like what that debate was about and where it ended up? What was the decision? Yeah, so uh, earlier this year, Facebook really went through a reckoning internally over a post uh, by President Donald Trump uh, aimed at Black Lives Matter protesters that said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Um, this was a widely covered comment he made. And uh, the platforms all chose to interact with it differently. Twitter hit it behind a warning label, turned off the ability to retweet or comment on it, saying that it was glorifying violence. And then Facebook decided to not do anything about it because uh, CEO Mark Zuckerberg has this view that politicians are already scrutinized uh, to the highest degree uh, in terms of that kind of speech and Facebook should not be making decisions about what its users see from their elected officials. And so Facebook did nothing, but there was a group inside Facebook, specifically a group tasked with its strategy for dealing with uh, elections integrity and combating misinformation uh, in a civic sense. And they put together a proposal that went pretty viral inside the company uh, up to up to Zuckerberg, essentially saying we need to take a harder stance on politicians. If politicians are uh, making calls to violence on our platform, sharing harmful misinformation, we should be doing basically what Twitter's doing. We should be restricting it, uh, hiding the ability to see it, uh, li- making it harder to share it. And these kind of changes are much more structural because they prohibit uh, the posts from being amplified through Facebook's algorithms like it would otherwise. Um, 
And basically that push was was vetoed from the top down uh, by Zuckerberg and senior execs, my sources told me. We see now what Facebook landed on, which are these election labels that they put under every single post uh, semi-related to the election. They use AI to just slap these labels on with a link to authoritative information about the voting process and the results, you know, to their credit. But they don't downrank any content or hide it from politicians if it's if the politicians are sharing misinformation or harmful. So so let's 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 actually uh, break down here because you mentioned the downranking. And this kind of gets to the difference in strategy and tactics between Facebook and Twitter. So wh- why don't you kind of explain how Twitter differs than Facebook on this particular stance? With Trump in the last several weeks, they've actually put him in like um, a digital timeout essentially where there's a warning in front of his tweet. You can't see it unless you click into it, and then you can't retweet it, and you can't comment on it. Um, and that essentially limits the distribution of his tweets significantly. And um, they do this in you know what they deem to be the gravest of circumstances. If he's you know making uh, really I guess intense allegations of uh, election fraud that are not uh, substantiated, for example. So Facebook does not do that, and um, that's actually something that Zuckerberg has said they won't do. They will not. Um, they will not be putting politicians in the dog pound on their platform, um, at least in the near future. And when it gets to you know morale within the company and how these guys are debating this topic, and when I, the company I mean Facebook, I mean how popular is this stance? I mean Zuckerberg, for, for all of his you know criticisms and and, and missteps along the way, has been mostly consistent i would say on this on this stance i mean how do people generally feel about the fact that even at this time where you know misinformation is at its height and we have the president actively disseminating you know false claims about voter fraud i mean what's the sense within the company about that stance at this point i would say that it represents an ideological divide within the company especially between senior executives and the rank and file and specifically people working on its civic integrity team who uh, you know this is a team of hundreds who their whole job is how can we mitigate Facebook's you know harmful influence in elections and civic discourse. This group has been pushing for much stricter measures uh, around this kind of stuff and has been really rebuffed from the top. You're right in saying that Zuckerberg has been, uh, if anything, consistent, and I think that's his his uh, his view of all this is that he doesn't want Facebook to be slipping into moments where it's labeling or, or censoring content because people at the company don't like it or in a way that's not you know inconsistent uh, and can't be applied globally at scale because Facebook is um, you know most of its users are outside of the US and increasingly in countries that aren't English first and where the company doesn't have a significance uh, a significant on-the-ground presence so I think he's thinking long term in that way but um, you there's also the trade-offs of what harm is Facebook potentially allowing to happen as a result of not you know, uh, letting this stuff go um, unchecked, I guess, or should I say checked? But it, it's a very, I mean, it's a very complicated um, issue, and it's one that you know was obviously raised during this this hearing recently that Zuckerberg and Dorsey participated in again. And I think it's one that we're just going to have to keep talking about collectively as an industry and kind of society in these next few years. So l- let's talk about the hearing for a second here. I mean, this would be what the third or fourth time we've talked about a various you know different social media or tech hearing uh, in D.C. about you know, the nature of these platforms. One of the things that always strikes me about Zuckerberg's approach to this topic is he really, you know, beyond just, you know, the the 
ideology of wanting to believe in free speech, he is is fixated on this fairness and that they don't want to be seen as biased towards probably towards the left or Democrats. Has that worked at all in their favor? I mean, has his willingness to maybe be more permissive to misinformation on the right endeared the company in any way to the Republicans? Or is this just completely impossible for him and the company? I would say it definitely has endeared him uh, to Republicans. Um, you could kind of get that vibe during the hearing, this you know four and a half hour hearing that we just had a few days ago. Um, I think uh, Facebook, though, they get critiques from the different sides. You know, Democrats think that Facebook is not doing enough to police content on its platform and censor uh, harmful content. And Republicans think they're doing too much uh, and that there's already like a Republican anti-conservative bias. And so Facebook's really like right between a rock and a hard place uh, between both of the major parties. And I don't know if that says that they're consistent or <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. I mean, it's definitely interesting that they're getting attacked pretty um, ferociously for different things from opposite sides. Yeah, I mean, I guess the old line in journalism is that if both sides are mad at you, you must be doing something right. Uh, it's Maybe right. it's not as clear in this particular situation because honestly, Facebook could probably be facing you know, the idea of regulation from one side or the other, no matter what they do. It's not like they're going to end up that both sides are so mad at Facebook for different reasons that nothing is going to happen to them, right? I mean, it does seem like one way or the other, there's right. going to be some repercussions for their stance. Oh, absolutely. And we know that the, uh, the FTC is preparing an antitrust lawsuit against them in conjunction with some states. Um, so yeah, no, they're definitely... Uh, there's definitely more to come on this. So then my last question is, and this is something I've been thinking about for a while. Um, let's just say that we're going to go down the almost certainly likely path that Joe Biden, you know, is sworn in uh, on January 20th. And Trump, again, becomes effectively a private citizen or not, a you know, really private citizen, but not, you know, government employee. Do you foresee a possibility that Facebook or Twitter decide at a certain point that the level of, you know, misinformation that he's putting out there and or, um, you know, calls to violence that they've highlighted in the past could realistically get him or a high level official banned from the platform? Uh, Twitter has said this. And I actually do think that once Trump loses his political uh, protection, you could see him actually, you know, stuff taken off Facebook. I, I doubt he'll be banned outright, but there are certainly some things he's posted in the last, you know, year for that. Uh, if a, if someone who wasn't the president posted, um, I imagine Facebook would have done more about it. So that would be really interesting to watch. But the likelihood is probably higher that Trump moves to some other parlor type app for uh, conservatives or his own media network, right? I think we're going to probably see him actually take people with him to another platform would be my guess. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, the guy lives in, and breathes distribution and widest possible audience. And it's hard for me to think that Trump's going to be as effective doing what he does if he's just on Parler. But uh, all right, Alex, thanks so much for this. Uh, I, I, I I imagine at some point we're going to have you back on here to talk about uh, these platforms doing uh, a stepped up in their regulation and, and you know monitoring of these posts. So that'll be that'll be a fun one. You know how to reach me, Tom. Let's play a fun Silicon Valley parlor game. How many subsidiaries of Alphabet can you name? I'll give you a second. Okay, so there's Verily, which has been in the news a lot for its healthcare work lately. There's Sidewalk Labs, of course, the city building effort. 
There's Waymo, self-driving cars, DeepMind, AI research. There's Wing, of course, drone delivery. And one of the longest running of these other bets is Loon. Loon works on, well, balloons. Balloons that provide internet access. Alphabet's idea here is that these balloons can provide internet connectivity. In rural areas and developing countries, how this works is on-the-ground stations run by internet providers can send signals up to Loon's really big balloons, which then send that signal back down over much larger distances. That way, people with a mobile phone can get a better internet signal. But how is this alphabet bet really doing? Can this thing ever actually be a real business? My colleague Nick Bastone dug into these questions with a really good story this week that you all should check out, and he has joined me now. Nick, let's first walk through some of the basics of Loon. What's Alphabet's big idea here, and why have they been going after this? Yeah, so the idea is that um, you know they send these these helium balloons, you know, about twenty kilometers up into the sky, into the stratosphere, and they're able to you know, beam internet down to the ground. You know, back in 2011, when they kind of started this project, uh, they really had this mantra of, of connecting the unconnected. So, um, you know, bringing internet to people that had never had it before. So that was, that's a huge initiative that's um, uh, a big idea. Right. And I remember I was covering Facebook several years ago. They had their own sort of version of this. Uh, you know, this this has been kind of a key tenet for these big internet giants. Like, we can play a role in furthering connectivity around the world because infrastructure is expensive. Not everyone has internet access. Like, we can help solve this. Right. And the more people that have internet, the more potential customers for companies like Facebook or for Google. Okay. So as you said, Loon has been around for a while. Um I feel like I sort of hear about it, you know, maybe like every year or so. There's like sort of a different story about like how it's doing. How has how has Loon historically been funded? How does Alphabet turn this cool, interesting, you know, idea into something that's potentially self-sustaining? Right. So, I mean, it started off, you know, as an idea within Google and then, um, you know, it went into Google X, which was, you know, this, you know, idea incubator. So I guess for a while, I mean, it was funded by Google. And then when you had Alphabet, um, you know, become a thing in, in 2015, it started creating these subsidiary companies and, and Loon became its own unit. So, you know, it's been funded for from Alphabet for, for most of its life. Uh, it did take money from SoftBank uh, in April of, of last year. What we had found in our reporting is that, you know, that money had lasted them a while, but has since uh, dried up. And what is, why is this thing expensive? I mean, it sounds expensive. It's like shooting balloons up into the sky. There are some elements to this business that you wrote about that make the cost structure maybe difficult to sustain and sort of maybe as a reason why it continues to need uh, outside funding. Right. So, you know, you have, you know, the cost of these balloons where, 
you know, you're sending, a, you need a bunch of them up in the sky. Uh, they don't last forever. Uh, so you're constantly replacing them. There's obviously like operational costs on the ground of, uh, of people, you know, steering and making sure that, you know, the balloons are where they need to be that you just don't have with a, with a more traditional or, you know, uh, terrestrial internet provider. But then you also have like the markets that loons in. So their sort of target and, and what they're good at is providing internet to rural areas. But some of those areas might not be able to, the internet providers there might not be able to charge their customers uh, that much. So, you know, right now they're in places like rural Kenya and Mozambique and rural Peru. You know, the, you know, the money they're able to make there, um, you know, we had one person say in Kenya they're, they would be lucky to to break even at best. And one way they could possibly make money is to bring this technology to, you know, more lucrative markets like in the U.S. or in, in Canada. And interestingly, um, you know, SpaceX has its own initiative um, with launching satellites, um, you know, up into the sky to, to bring Internet. And, you know, when that launches probably next year, they, they've said their first markets are going to be uh, in the U.S. and in Canada. So, um, you know, maybe they've learned from Loon where it's harder to make money in some of these less lucrative markets. Alphabet has, in general, had a kind of interesting relationship with the subsidiaries that it spins up and how to fund them, what the prospects are to make money. What are the the sort of examples of of sister companies underneath Alphabet? What are like some some sort of evidence of successes and failures? And how do you think Loon kind of fits on that spectrum? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to point to like a huge success from a from another bet that's making money. I mean, in the first three quarters of of this year, the the bets brought in uh, $460 million in revenue, but they lost the company over $3 billion. You know, one interesting example that's, you know, not great news for Loon is Makani, uh, which was its own, you know, company. And it shut down this year because it couldn't find more outside investments and Alphabet decided not to continue to fund it. And so that's sort of like, uh, the cautionary tale or, or, or this example that's like looming over Loon. Looming over Loon. <laughs> they're, you know, they're, they kind of find themselves in a similar position. Uh, now people have said, like, there's more history to Loon. Um, you know, it was a favorite of, of Larry Page for, uh, for a while. And why is that? Why, why is Larry? Why did Larry like it? Well, it was just such a big idea, you know, like back when he became CEO for the second time in, in 2011, I think he was, you know, really hungry to prove that Alphabet could have a, a second, uh, you know, big win. You had obviously you had search. Uh, so around that time, you know, you had self-driving car initiative spin up, you had Google Glass and you had loon like you know bringing internet to the world that's a that's a huge idea so i think it was one of those early initiatives of, of you, know, you know trying to be google's second act where do you think this leaves loon going forward what where do you think this thing ends up in five years yeah it's hard to say i mean like we, you know we heard that they're in talks with with some potential investors and they're looking to raise a little bit more than they raised from softbank last time so around you know 125 million but you know, at their current burn rate, that would only last them for, for, you know, another year or so. 
I don't know. It's it serves some really good purposes. It's brought in internet to people, you know, in disaster situations where their internet went out, and bringing internet to, like we've said, and in, to people in rural areas that haven't had it before. So it serves this, you know, amazing purpose. And it's just a question of can it ever be a successful business? Super innovative, but can it make money? That 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 is uh, it's one of the questions of our time. Right. Well, Nick, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for having me. That is this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. And of course, thanks to Alex Heath, Corey Weinberg, Nick Bestone for lending their expertise, Ariella Markowitz for producing. This is Tom Doton signing off, reminding all of you out there this holiday season, there is still COVID out there. Please be safe. Please follow guidelines. I'll see you back here next week.